Hello and welcome to everyone joining us today. We're going to be talking about carbon neutrality and net zero carbon and the importance to uh, junior miners and more importantly to retail investors. So we're going to be ably assisted today uh, in understanding those by Martin Chiran, President and CEO of FPX Nickel Corp, Mark Selby and CEO and Chair of Canada Nickel, and Jason Jessup, CEO of Magna Mining. Gentlemen, uh, welcome. If I may ask you to just give us a 30-second elevator pitch on yourselves today. I'm Martin Trent. I'm the CEO of FPX Nickel. Uh, FPX is a uh, Vancouver-based company trading on the Venture Exchange. We're focused on the development of the Baptiste Nickel Deposit. It's a PEA stage project in central BC. It's one of the largest nickel deposits in the world. We're moving forward on a preliminary feasibility study and all of that models, you know, very large scale nickel production at low cost and at low carbon as well. Mark Selby, Chair and CEO of Canada Nickel, uh, advancing the Crawford Nickel Project, uh, a new sulfide discovery uh, that is the largest sulfide discovery since the early 1970s, rapidly advancing towards feasibility study at the end of this year. I am Jason Jessup, the CEO of Magna Mining. Uh, trading under the ticker symbol NICU on the TSXV. Our flagship asset is the Shakespeare Project, which is a past-producing nickel-copper PGM open pit mine with major permits for the construction and recently uh, released feasibility results on that. Why don't we start with um, you, if I may? We'll, we'll get onto your project in a second, but you know, obviously, the, you know, people are used to hear, or certainly getting more used to hearing these phrases: carbon neutral, zero carbon, and, and, and net zero, and they, they kind of find it interchangeable they don't quite mean the same things um how 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 do you, how are you um managing some one or any of those things within your organization um to your advantage yeah so we're we're focused on the development of a very large nickel deposit that's uh, located in central british columbia um like most of the canadian nickel projects we will benefit from the availability of uh hydroelectricity which leads to a very low sort of what we would call gross carbon footprint for the uh, production of, of nickel from this operation. And then as with, you know, Mark's project and some of the other projects in Canada, mineralogically, we benefit from the fact that our host rock contains minerals that will absorb or mineralize carbon dioxide. So you take that gross carbon footprint and you have the potential to render that even lower, potentially down to zero or in some circumstances, net negative. And so this idea of producing low carbon zero carbon or even net negative carbon would be revolutionary for the for the nickel market and it's an opportunity we're, we're, we're keenly focused on. Mark, you've got something similar happening over at your project, haven't you? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, you know, as Martin pointed out, you know, the, the, the opportunity here is this entire sort of class of ultramafic nickel deposits has this great advantage. You know, I, a lot of people talk about, you know, sort of net zero and it's okay, well, we're going to produce a lot of carbon, but we're going to go buy a lot of carbon credits, you know, and we'll, you know, kind of get get to zero. Um, you know, the, the nice thing with 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 these types of projects is we can in, get actually inherently within the project boundaries itself to a place um, that is zero carbon. You know, as Mark pointed out, you know, we've got these rocks that spontaneously want to absorb CO2 when they're exposed to air. So, um, you know, we, you know we, we think in terms of like, you know, mining companies' portfolios, you know, these are going to be critical anchor assets going forward if you really want to have a, a low carbon portfolio asset portfolio going forward. And what about you, Jason? I mean, you know, when you, when the project's just kind of kicking off, company's just getting going, is, is this a distraction? Yeah, not at all. We think it's a, it's a really important part of our, our strategy moving forward. And as both Martin and Mark had pointed out, you know, we're fortunate to be in a, a jurisdiction that has hydroelectricity power. Um, and we just completed a feasibility study that uh, has calculated our, our greenhouse gas emissions. And, 
And we think it's something that does uh, make us stand out. And, and I think any uh, junior company, and especially in the battery metal, you know, nickel uh, cobalt space that has low greenhouse gas emissions, it's going to be a, a preferred product uh, for, you know, future end users. Right. Because, I mean, and, and Martin, just in the, in the context of, um, we, t- we talked about ESG, but also in terms of, you know, there are groups, NGOs, et cetera, perhaps, you know, anti-mining there are you know swathes of people who, who don't like the, the idea of of mining um does this help in a narrative or a conversation um with with people who are not perhaps um that mining friendly or, or certainly won't you know, wouldn't want to invest or be associated with mining yeah it's not not simply narrative matthew it's something i've been thinking about and really saying for years now is that the staunchest environmentalists should be the staunchest supporters of responsible mining because we cannot, as a planet, as a as global economy, achieve the targets of the Paris Accord in mitigating carbon emissions without mining. And so mining actually, you know, without standing, wanting to sound too grandiose, mining can help save the planet in that way. Um, so we see a huge kind of um, overlap of interest between those environmental concerns and the concerns of, of the mining industry and therefore of, of investors. So, but you decided to take this into your own hands um, somewhat and you've, you've um, just announced thing today, uh, CO2 Lock Corp. What's that about? Yeah, so FPX has established a new subsidiary, as you mentioned, CO2 Lock Corp. And you know the, per- the vision and mission of CO2 Lock Corp will be to uh, explore for and develop mineral deposits uh, for their high content of brucite and other magnesium minerals that sequester CO2. The, this is the content of mineralization that Mark mentioned earlier. These, these, uh, the, the, the brucite and these minerals have never really been explored for on their own. And we think there's a world in which high grade brucite deposits can be profitable operations for their ability to sequester carbon dioxide. So at a given carbon price, you could mine for high brucite content mineral deposits and have profitable operations simply for that with no with no um, you know attention paid let's say to any byproduct credits for nickel or other things that might come along with those deposits so this is a, it's a it's a it's a bit of a kind of R&D moonshot but we, and we think something that more rightly sits in a separate standalone vehicle but uh, for FPX shareholders it gives them some upside and some access to any intellectual property that would be developed in pursuing this this concept. Hey, Mike, you, you seem to want to make the distinction between um, companies which, um, bought, you know, bought, there's, there's going to be a massive carbon credit market, I suspect. We're going to see lots of new companies, lots of new consultancies mm-hmm. springing up left, right, and center. So a move, a move like Martin is suggesting um, s- seems sensible. You, you're, you're a little bit more in, in control of the whole process. Um, how, how do you see the landscape um you know, evolving um, in in this sense because there's not just miners who are going to leap aboard this, but um, others too. So, what do you what do you ta- what's your take on it all? Oh, I, no, I mean, I, I thought it was an absolutely brilliant move um, by Martin and, and FPX. Um, you know, the, the 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 key you know the key qualities of these deposits. I mean, they're very large scale, so you literally have billions of tons of material with the potential to you know uh, sequester kilos of carbon, uh, you know, per ton of that material. Um, and so to, you know, specifically draw attention to it and, and unlock the value there is, 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 you know, I jokingly talk about, you know, when you look at carbon prices climbing up in, in various jurisdictions that, you know, all of these, you know, I'll have a carbon, you know, I'm going to have a carbon credit mine with a nickel byproduct is, you know, 
where you know you know at one point you could actually you know you know look at getting to and and you know again you know i think separating out like that is is brilliant there's a company right now that gets a lot of attention um in iceland um called called carb fix and and they're going to a huge amount of work to, to basically create a giant soda stream machine that injects co2 and liquid into in situ rock you know underneath in underneath Iceland and so the fact that you know you, we process this rock to recover the minerals we want and then you know create more surface area that you know accelerates that and, and again this is a, a really a nascent area in terms of research um, so you know be, being able to have a vehicle that can can do it you know the department US Department of Energy has a huge research budget around um, you know carbon capture and and sequestration and again the si- the same type of program that they spend billions of dollars to de- develop defense equipment you know in the, in the US is is the same sort of approach they're using with carbon sequestration so um, yeah, no, it's 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 a it's an ex- extremely exciting development. Um, and um, Jason, I've come to, I've come to you next. The, so the, the 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 two other guys are uh, I've got a rate with the kind of sequestration complainer. Not all companies can um, do that. What what's what's your approach um, to this? You know, what, what kind of conversation can you have with investors around this topic? Yeah, so we don't have the the type of rock or, or waste rock we produce that would actually sequester CO two. Um, so we're a typical sulfide nickel deposit like the other deposits in Sudbury. Um, but you know the benefits that we have is we're eight kilometers away from a hydroelectric dam. We'll have a, a dedicated hydroelectric, essentially zero greenhouse gas emission power supply. Um, we have a very small footprint, so our haulage trucks, you know, are, are going to be traveling a very short distance from our pit to our our mill. And really, with our project, diesel fuel is the largest contributor to greenhouse gases. Now we've looked at things we can do, like. Uh, using uh, biodiesel, for example, which still produces greenhouse gases, but the plants that are used, uh, they're grown to create this biodiesel also capture CO2. So essentially it's, it's you know, net zero. Um, and the other thing is that, you know, we're fortunate to be in a region that is has two active smelters, um, which have very high standards run by very reputable mining companies. And so to move our concentrate from our site um, to those smelters has very little emissions as well. So there's a lot of things, um, you know, we have in favor. And I really applaud, you know, Martin and and other companies that are looking at developing new technologies and ways to capture carbon. And and we need to keep investing in that as a society. And I think it again, it's very important. Um, the reality today is there's a demand for for battery metals like nickel, and uh, and we don't have all those technologies in place yet. So. We have to, you know, with Magna, for example, and Shakespeare, and you know, we have a, a project that's largely permitted and could move into production very quickly. Um, so we look to minimize, you know, that impact. And, you know, we've had very positive reception from, from what we've done so far by, by measuring our impact and then, uh, and then, you know, finding ways to offset it through carbon offset credits and, and other uh, means. And groups like Mitsui, for example, who we announced were, were in discussions on an MOU as a JV partner, um, that was one of the criteria that you know really impressed them, and one of the reasons um, we are in discussions. It, so it, it's interesting to me because you, you've you've got a whole bunch of um, audiences to try and uh, appease um, as CEOs of public companies, and we had a conversation a couple of weeks ago with a journalist who wanted to do some copywriting for us, and they refused because we were asking them to write about a, a mining company on their laptop, which had been made with materials dug out of the ground. Um, didn't want to do it. Um, how 
much more do you think companies need to do to kind of you know win people over and say like it, you know it, mining is not, is not perfect but we can make it better than it is is that enough of an argument or is there is there a long way to go for mining companies um do you think martin yeah there, there's still a long way to go this is a sort of a public relations battle that the mining industry has been on the losing side of for probably going back over 50 years now um and you know the large and really i would suggest that the responsibility here really falls on the shoulders of the most well-endowed companies so the largest companies in the world uh i think should have huge self-interest to mount you know strong lobbying campaigns with governments globally as well as public relations campaigns with uh with um, the public at large if you look at the the largest diversified mining companies there are certain countries in which they cannot operate the, you know, countries where maybe, um, you know, Chinese interests can operate uh, and, you know, can operate uh, arguably in sort of questionable means through the provision of, you know, large bundles of cash in uh, manila envelopes and that sort of thing, which which Western mining, mining companies cannot. So there are a subset of com- countries that uh, the Western companies uh, can operate in. They need to make sure that they have an enduring ability to continue to operate in those countries for generations to come or else they won't have businesses anymore in 20 or 30 years from now. And, and the mining industry will be uh, utterly dominated by Chinese interests going forward. So there's an existential reason, I think, for large mining companies to spend a lot of time, energy, um, and, 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 and money, frankly, on lobbying and on PR efforts around showing that, that we can be part of the solution and we're actually a positive environmental contributor in a, in a low carbon economy. So, Mark, what do you make of that kind of need for us sort of jo- joined up thinking, as it were? We see um, companies like Tesla um, take all the plaudits and, and accolades, yet we've got reports this week of them potentially, not confirmed, teaming up with Valet to secure their nickel supplies uh, going forward because supply chains are going to become problematic. Um, yeah. Should others take the strain? No, I really like the way Martin put it. Is is you know the, the the major mining companies you know need to help you know own the reputation uh, for the industry uh, to be able to enable it going forward. I mean, you know what the war in Ukraine you know has unfortunately you know really driven home is that you know having resource dependence on economies um, run by people who are diametrically opposed to our underlying fundamental values uh, on a, on a range of fronts. Is, is just a bad idea. So, you know, I, I think now there's a there's a new opportunity for governments and so forth. And again, if mining companies step up in, in the right way to be able to rewrite, you know, some of the opportunities there to say, yeah, we need to have, you know, if we, if we want these materials, we need to mine them at home, process them at home, and so that we can sell them, you know, at home going forward. So, um, you know, I think that literally, we're, because the war has been only going on a month, you know, I think that those conversations are starting to happen now. And so it'll be really interesting to see how those, you know, evolve over the next 12 months. You know, what we absolutely, you know, need to not do, and unfortunately, the major mining companies, you know, seem to, to do it, you know, every time, you know, airlines are able to, you know, keep planes in the air 99.999% of the time. And yet the mining industry yeah, you know, the tailing stands failures in, in Brazil, you know, the, the fact that Rio Tinto blew up a, you know, ancient First Nations village that had been there, you know, for 5,000 years and blew it up to mine a little bit of iron ore, you know, that kind of stuff does not, you know, does not help 
the industry at all. And, and again, I'm hoping that, you know, that this is this is a, a way to reset the story going forward. OK, so, Jason, I'm, I'm looking at, for a company like yourself, you want to do things the right way. It potentially costs, well, it certainly takes a bit more time and planning. It potentially costs a little bit more Money, or you're going to tell me, or or or, or does it? Um, but are you seeing like the Canadian government, either provincially or federally, kind of stepping up and giving you uh, tax breaks, incentives, um, or, or credits against that particular part of the investment in your business to be able to do it the better, the best way possible? I'm trying to work out: does the money is there is there money available? Can the, is money cheaper if you want to do things the right way? Yeah, and I think that. Uh we're not quite there yet in Ontario with our government. I think there is a very supportive government towards mining and they are implementing strategies and they're not quite there yet, but we have seen, um, you know, a lot of positive news uh, lately coming out of Ontario um, for their strategic metals um, initiatives. And uh, I do hope that there will be, you know, a lot more support going forward. That being said, I don't think it's, you know, do we have, does it cost money to do the right thing? I think doing the right thing is the only way we can move forward. And and companies that aren't doing the right thing, as as both Martin and uh, and Mark mentioned, um, you know, they're not going to have the the local support. They're not going to have support from investors, and and ultimately from the major companies that may buy these junior companies. So doing the right thing, I think, is the only way to do business. Even though you know it does sometimes cost more. But really, it's about building that right culture and, and starting off on the right foot. And it's not just the majors who really need to lead by example. I think it's all of us and in, in, in the junior companies as well. It is, but not everyone does do it the right way because, you know, I guess everyone has a different management style and there are different management teams that perhaps um, maybe cash constraint and put under pressure to make the wrong, the wrong decision. So I'm wondering as an investor, what should I be looking for in a business to feel that I'm investing ethically, that I'm investing in a company with the right strategy when it when it comes to th- this topic. And like I say, it's a subset of the whole ESG uh, agenda. And there's, we've, we've heard varying um, and diametrically opposing views on, and, and thoughts on that one. So Martin, what, what's your take on what you look for when you're investing, you're not, you're not just a CEO, you're an investor too. Yeah, well, I think the great thing about this sector, uh, the junior end of the, of the spectrum, is that any any investor, no matter how small, should be able to get on the phone uh, and call up the company and ask to speak to the CEO. And the CEO, in every case, for our, our strata of companies, should be able to make time for that for that person. So it's available. We are available to investors to talk to no one should feel like their their investment is too small to actually have some time with the CEO to ask questions. And, you know, I think a key question, particularly for Canadian projects is, you know, what is your status of your sort of consultation and engagement with First Nations? And feel free to ask very pointed questions about that. How involved is the CEO in that? Or are they just kind of pushing that off to consultants or to, or to people lower down the food chain? I think it's really important for CEOs to be, you know, very much involved in that. And, and in my view, if they're able to answer questions in, in that regard, then that should tell you a little bit something about, you know, how they treat your people generally and, and, and important kind of partners. And that's what the First Nations are, I think, in, in all of the projects here that we're talking about. Talking about. Okay. Canada, that's a particularly big topic, um, has, has been uh, for a while. We're starting to see uh, instances where companies perhaps are, you know, falling foul of understanding that themselves or doing it properly. Um, 
and it, 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 it's it's sometimes hard to mitigate against, and sometimes not necessarily the company's fault. But I mean, what what are you doing, Martin, specifically that has, has enabled you to kind of operate with with some degree of freedom and with with the blessing of First Nations where you are? Yeah, I mean, I think as a general concept, the idea that um, companies like ours need to be consulting with uh, local First Nations, identifying the First Nations before even reconnaissance exploration activities begin um, and have those discussions be led at the CEO level. That's a real sort of sign of respect, I think, to local communities that, it, again, it's not low-level functionaries or consultants who are doing that work. And so in our case, that has been sort of the MO of FPX really dating back to 2007, you know, before we ever set foot on the project to do that early reconnaissance exploration with my predecessor and now with, with myself, these are responsibilities that sit at the center of our plate. It takes a lot of our time, um, but, you know, uh, everyone in the community there has my email address, has my mobile phone number. They're able to contact me. I contact them. It really is um, important, I think, for the, for the CEO to be directly engaged in that file. In those conversations, if I may ask, is... The, the carbon capture component or the zero carbon or these kind of broad headlines which you know you know th that funds look for as as they rebrand themselves with the SG credentials um that they need to tick a box for um to be able to allocate capital when you're talking to first nations how big of a consideration is it for them? Do they care or are there more important things ahead of that? There are definitely far more important things. I think it's a nice to have for them, but you know, carbon mitigation is sort of a is is sort of has a has a global impact, whereas the development of a very large industrial site has a very local impact, right, on on the landscape there. And so that is that those impacts, those local impacts are by far the most paramount for for the, for, for the communities that, that we partner with. Okay. So, Mike, here's a question for you. CO2 mm -hmm. lockup done by FPX. Uh, it's a really nice really nice idea. You guys have got something similar going on. You had your own sort of net zero initiative at mm -hmm. the beginning of last year, um, as it were. Yeah. Do you think, because you guys are going to, you know, be, be able be able you're, you're more than dealing with your own needs you've got enough to sell this off and in, 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 into the market they, these kind of car, these um carbon capture type products for other uh brands etc um do you are we going to see mining companies in association with or um you know tesla in association with said whatever nickel company carbon capture company now, how, how do i'm trying to work out how do you how do you kind of um up the ante in terms of awareness. How do you up the ante in terms of you know association with some of these bigger brands, and therefore deal with some of the more negative connotations around mining for some of the, the you know the, the the people out there. Yeah, I think one of the key things there is is really collaborating with with other groups who've got you know a brand in the space already, and so you know that to me is is exciting about some of the you know the research that we're doing and some of the groups that we're you know looking to be working with you know to be able to, to you know effectively um you know a get that sort of brand rub off um on the company um and then two you know again you know this is still a you know a really relatively early area of work you know there's lots you know again the size of the prize is huge and so, you know, the more smart minds you can get in the room and work together and share ideas and so forth, you know, the, you know, the, the better it is for the company. So again, you know, you want to be investing in companies that are thinking about this today um, and getting themselves, you know, 
as best best positioned, you know, to be one of the, the leaders in the space going forward. But but what what makes this better than say someone offering to sell you carbon capture from a forest, I don't know, hundred hectare land package in Brazil, which was already in existence, which was already doing that job, versus this where you guys are digging up rocks, more more uh, surface area on those rocks, and they're they're absorbing carbon credit. Is it better or is it different? I mean, where, where oh, would you it's, put it? Oh, it's it's just so much inherently better. Like to, you can say, you know, this is our project. And within this footprint, you know, we are we are zero carbon, or in, in our in again, you know, we think there's a potential to be net negative carbon. So we're improving our project is in, in improving the planet's carbon footprint. You know, is, is a pretty powerful statement to be able to say. Yeah, uh, I, I would I would just sorry to jump in there, but yeah, no um, worries. You know, the key word is that it's permanent capture of CO two. It's permanent capture of CO two in a forest is not permanent. At some point. Those trees will die naturally. There will be a forest fire. They will be cut down. And so a carbon credit associated with that carbon capture has a shelf life and it leads to a fairly low value credit. Uh, the, the, the permanence of carbon capture where you're mineralizing the CO2, you're locking it away on a geological time scale, uh, means that these will be particularly high value credits. And to your question on sort of partnership, and I, I think Mark, Mark's answer was great there. You know, there are a lot of, you know, high carbon emitting uh, industries out there in Canada, in particular, the oil and gas industry, they have a major, major carbon problem they need to deal with. They're going to look at a lot of different approaches, kind of an all of the above approach to funding different technology approaches to dealing with this issue. And, and so, you know, we see the potential with CO2 lock for collaboration, certainly with those types of groups, because they've, They've got a massive problem. Again, it's existential for their businesses to to get to mitigate carbon. Yeah, I, I kind of find it interesting in, in, in sense that we we know from you know this is this is this is history repeating. It's just a different topic. The consult the number of consultants will will increase, and the number of products will increase, and some will be well significantly better than 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 others. And you're gonna we have to kind of, sort of almost like a hierarchy or a, a, some kind of ranking or qualification against what carbon capture is, what carbon credits are. Um, and hope that you know retail investors can actually understand the difference, and not get sold sold a dud along the way. Um, um, Jason, I mean, obviously you're you're listening into this, but you know you, you're 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 playing your own furrow, as it were. You, you you've got you've got to answer these questions like a like a lot of uh, miners do, um, not just for your current shareholders, but for new 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 shareholders stepping in. I, I guess you do have the luxury of saying yeah, at least you're in the right space, you're in battery battery metal space, but uh, the there's a there's a higher expectation on you guys than they would say with well certainly you know coal necessarily or precious metals. So do you, do you feel that pressure to you know have to you know step your game up even more? Yeah, I do. We do for sure, and we think you know because the metals we'll be producing will be so important into the the EV future and, and the impact that's going to have globally on on climate change. Um, you know, we really do want to be a leader in that in that field and. You know, we think that what we are doing right now and, you know, we hopefully will have the technologies in place where we can have absolutely, you know, not just net zero, but but zero carbon emissions um, in the future. And that's what we're striving towards. But in the meantime, over the next five to 10 years, um, you know, we hope to be producing very low carbon nickel. And when I say um, very low carbon intensive nickel, you know, compared to the, the broad nickel um, industry, you know, including, you know, laterite ores, 
um, in other jurisdictions that are still producing, you know, what we estimate will be 10 times more than what we uh, are estimating to produce from Shakespeare. You know, we think that we're on the right track. Um, we think that's really important, um, you know, to be able to supply those metals in, in a very low carbon fashion. And especially for end users, and you mentioned Tesla and, you know, this potential deal they have with Valet. And, you know, we obviously know Valet very well as being a big operator here in Sudbury. And, and they've made tremendous efforts um, to lower their emissions to the point where the super stack, which was, which is an icon in, in Sudbury, um, will be dismantled because it's no longer needed because, uh, of the low amount of emissions that are coming out of their smelter. So, you know, we want to be a part of that. Um, we really strive to, and, and we're expected to. Um, and we want to, you know, be supplying these metals in the very short term, you know, within the next uh, three to five years. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't, I mean, Martin, Martin you, you can't sit in your laurels. You, you, although th- this is great what you, what you can do, but the rest of your business needs to, you know, follow suit and needs to be as efficient as possible and needs to kind of meet these standards. I, he, he's going to regulate these, Mark. He's, he's going to tell you you're doing it right. The financiers? Oh, you no. Know, I mean, that's the, you know, what, what, A, there's the developing the technology and then there's B, actually, you know, um, developing the standards and reporting to make sure that, you know, the inf- investors get clear, reliable information and all the participants in the chain get it. So, you know, with the EU putting carbon taxes in place, that discipline of having to carbon count as as you use materials through the chain, I think, you know, if, if things haven't been developed by then, that's going to be the thing that'll sort of push it through the system and have, you know, ISO, there'll be an ISO, you know, like there is for other thing, reporting things, there'll be an ISO standard for carbon carbon reporting. What's your take? And on the carbon on the carbon credits themselves, the analogy I would make is to the debt markets, you've got junk debt. So that's that's uh, nature-based uh, carbon offsets uh, like the forests. And then you've got AAA debt, and that's the carbon mineralization of the type that, that uh, you know, can occur in these types of ultramafic settings. And there will be, I think, it, there will be independent sort of agencies that, that grade um, um, these, these credits accordingly. Right. And gentlemen, you're, you're all in the same space. Um, we can't leave without you talking about what's going on in, in the nickel market. Um Mark, you, you're a regular visitor to our battery show over at cruxinvestor.com. Um, do, do you think, do you think there's any more clarity after what's been a sort of tumultuous kind of six weeks or so? We've, we've had obviously Russia come into Ukraine. We've had the LME, um, debacle. Um, is it moving towards some sort of a uh, semblance of normality? Is price going to sit between that 30, 60, thousand dollar range yeah no I, I think you know we've seen we've seen the nickel price actually trade now uh, for more than five minutes a day it's not limit up or limit down yet so you know I, I think in a settling in a range that to me makes sense sort of just north of thirty thousand dollars a ton um you know I, again there's still going to be a huge amount of volatility there's a little only when you ever have a little inventory and then gargantuans on either side of the trade are trying to shove the market one way or the other we're still going to see a lot of volatility um, over the next while, but I, I I think we're through the worst of it for now. But again, it, you know, to, to my mind, it just blew up all these structural issues in the nickel space that you know all three of us, you know, as Canadian low carbon, um, you know, potential nickel producers, uh, you know, are 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 going to you know very very much benefit from. Right. What's your take, Morrison? Yeah. Yeah, it really highlights uh, just following. It, it highlights the tremendous concentration of geopolitical risk in the global nickel supply chain, far more so than exists in copper and zinc and other other major metals. So much nickel comes out of places like China, Indonesia, Russia, 
uh, countries that are, you know, that are frankly just not allied with European and North American interests in a lot of different ways. Um, and so, you know, the question then for European and, and North American automakers and for consumers is, will they be able to take nickel from these places or will they have to really defer back to taking, to accepting nickel units only from Canada and Australia and, and other, other more allied countries? Um, I wouldn't be definitive that they will commit to doing so. I think that's going to have to be led by consumers and regulators as well. But the winds are certainly blowing in that direction. And again, this is not the first sort of geopolitical eruption we've seen in, in the nickel market. And it's not going to be the last either. No, I, I, no doubt. No doubt. The molecules need to flow a different way. But, you know, how that eventually flows into the market, what what price and where from will be really, really fascinating. I mean, Jason, if you if you look at a company, you're a little bit smaller than um, the other two guys. Um, what does this sort of um, volatility do for you? Is it a positive thing or a negative thing or just the fact that people are looking at, at nickel so keenly? Is that quite helpful for you? Yeah, obviously, uh, nickel has become you know much more topical, I think, just to the general retail investor and and people are trying to understand, but I think volatility like this is not really good for anyone. And, you know, just to add a little bit to what Martin and Mark were saying, um, you know, the LME, I think, has a lot of work cut out to kind of regain confidence, um, you know, in the buyers again. And my prediction will be there'll be a lot more um, shortening of supply chains and a lot more vertical integration in the business. And, uh, you know, that could be very positive for, for companies like ours, um, where, you know, other battery manufacturers and, and electric vehicle manufacturers are looking to source good supplies of, of low carbon um, nickel in the future and, and not counting on just being able to buy on the LME where we obviously have seen that the price can be really manipulated. What do you think it needs to be radically overhauled then, Jason? There's definitely an overhaul and whether it's radically, but there definitely needs to be an overhaul. Um, I don't know where it's going to go. I hope the LME can get things straightened out and, and regain confidence, um, you know, in the market. But I think that uh, there definitely needs to be changes. Right, Mark, you're, you're a keen um, user of the phrase, we need all of the nickel. The, the supply demand fundamentals demand it. You demand it almost weekly basis uh, with us. So you're, you're a big fan of all nickel uh, producers. Um, what do you make of uh, Canada's contribution to um, that going forward? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, you know, a couple of key data points for investors here, you know, North America is going to need, you know, producers in the space, say, you know, 300,000 tons of nickel just for the EV market by 2030. The number for Europe is 450,000 tons. Combined production in Canada and Europe uh, is 200,000. You know, we need a half a million tons of nickel supply by 2030. Again, I don't think that the supply, the supply chain some people have, um, and we are in discussions with some of those groups, but then there's a, there's again a surprising you know number of people who just think that the nickel is going to mysteri my, my, mysteriously appear. And so you know number one, you know that's an opportunity for investors to you know in terms of the different commodities, you know the, the, the carbon curves have different shapes, and so nickel is one of these ones as as, as both Martin and Jason you know there's a, a huge amount of supply has a huge carbon footprint, so. If you can identify those companies that are in metals where there's a massive difference between the first quartile and the last quartile for carbon, you know, that's going to create, you know, a, a huge amount of opportunity. And, and again, just broadly, you know, you get these massive shifts in, in things once in a while. And, you know, the Internet was one of those, you know, carbon, literally, I mean, you need to think about, you know, where the world is going with carbon 
in the same way sort of the internet shook things up. And so, you know, investing early in the internet in, in the mid nineties was a good trade. And, you know, lots of bricks and mortar retail disappeared. The same thing here, you know, the market is going to wake up to that fact at some point and, and projects like all of ours that are in places with low carbon power um, that again, Martin, and I have the magic carbon eating rocks, um, you know, will, you know, are, are going to be massive winners, right? You know, it, it just, it just might take a little longer than you think to get there, but, you know, put your money in and wait. And, you know, it's, 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 it's again, it's one of those once in a generation investing opportunities. So it sounds like a good time to invest, Martin. Yeah, I think so. And I think we've seen it. We still continue to see a deep disconnect between the price, of the commodity and the price, of the underlying companies um, that will correct over time. You know, saw Jeff Curry from uh, Goldman Sachs on CNBC a couple of days ago and, you talked about the last sort of commodity cycle really kicked off in sort of 2003-4, but it wasn't really until 2005-6 that the sort of the underlying major company equities really, really moved and that they got those, those major companies got a real full green light from their investors to deploy capital into the next generation of mines. And, and so you're looking at that kind of time lag, I think, you know, the next couple of years are going to be really interesting. And Jason, final word from you. We need all nickel. We're all, we're all violently agreed on that, um, especially the highly leveraged ones like yourself. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, the market does have a disconnect right now. And, you know, we kind of look at, at all three of our companies and, you know, there's been some improvements, but still not in relation to the price of metals. And obviously our, our projects are worth a lot more, um, you know, on paper at least, but we're just not seeing that in the market. So I do believe, you know, that the markets will uh, catch on and things will uh, sort of uh, equalize and, and to where they should be. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it's going to be an exciting time over the next couple of years. 